The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact-checking and corrections are encouraged. Can we get a cup of coffee in here, please? America, you've got a dog that needs walking. That's right, sunshine. Just put on a big pot of strong coffee and get ready to type your little hate mail with your opinions about Kumbaya and Flat Earth insanity. Stand up comedy? You want stand up comedy? Well, we got, well, we've got sit down comedy. It's time for Coffee with a Dog. You make me laugh. Well, that's nice. Oh, yeah, the Mind Dog TV tentacles are all over this United States. 48. Lower 48. Or 48 if you're in Hawaii. Be over there at 48. I don't know. 48. 48. Good morning, folks. See all that energy? It's all gone already. I'm 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 wiped out. Uh, have a nice day. Have a good weekend. It is Friday, September fifteenth, twenty twenty three. Today is the first day <coughs> of Hispanic Heritage Month. I don't know why they start in the middle of the month. Uh, and I don't know that they go to the middle of next month. It's a very strange thing, what we call Hispanic Heritage Month, starting on September 15th. But if you're uh, of Hispanic heritage, enjoy your month. Have a good one. Okay. Um, people in Las Vegas and people around the world reacting to you might remember back in April, there was a uh, family that called the police to say aliens were in their backyard. Aliens, not not Mexicans, not Guatemalans, not Nicaraguans. Aliens from another planet were in their backyard. Definitely not human. Uh, and there was an audio thing on that. But somebody has created a CGI uh, animation of that. It looks pretty real. And people are reacting to it, thinking it's a video. Now, this is where this is where things get really muddy in in all this kind of stuff. When people start faking this stuff and not telling people that it's fake or it's an animation, and people are thinking they're looking at a real video and reacting to it, it really muddies the waters as far as investigating this kind of stuff. Uh, so, it, but people are arguing about. Oh, they don't look real to me. Of course they don't look real to you. They're not real. They're computer generated. It's crazy. It's a crazy world we live in. Anyway, I hope you're having a great day today. As I mentioned, kind of like, you know, being silly. Uh, we have people all over this uh, country right now. We got Willie 
who is up in South Dakota or is on his way up to South Dakota today to perform this weekend, tomorrow night, at a great comedy competition. We hope he wins that. So he won't be here with the news today, unfortunately. We got, we're got willy list. I lost my willy. Um, and Carl, who has uh, made his way from Manchester, England, to Los Angeles, to Tucson, and tonight will be in Bisbee. Looks like uh, he had a great time uh, by pictures that he posted on uh, Twitter. Looked like he had a great time last night at Bumstead in, in uh, Tucson with the big show hosted by Doug Stanhope featuring uh, with, you know, Billy Wayne Davis featuring Christine Levine and Andy Andrus. Looks like Carl's having a great time, and I'm a little bit jealous of him. But uh, we are, as I say, reaching out. Our, our, the people associated with this program are ambassadors to the world <laughs> for our nonsense. Anyway, uh, I hope Carl is having a great time there. Maybe, I, don't, I doubt he'll check in today. We have a pretty full show for you today. Uh, Rebecca Coffey is a science journalist. She should be with us at 9.15 this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about evolution and love. Love and Evolution, probably a song in there somewhere, Love and Evolution, um, and in the second hour, we'll talk to a author, a uh, first-time novelist, Omari Richards, um, who has a uh, soul and, uh, sword and soul-style epic fantasy uh, that he wants to talk about. His book went to, uh, first novel went to uh, bestseller status in just a few days. He'll be with us to talk about uh, his new book and we'll have some fun with that uh possibly we'll get to i think we'll get to um uh critical joke theory with our friend uh gd fenderson we'll get to that sometime in the uh in the whole process here and um that's it and you know what uh, i'm getting rock stars following me now i'm not reaching out it, it's this is it. woke up in the middle of the night two different rock stars I'm not going to say who they are. Following me on Twitter. I didn't reach out to them. It's a very cool thing. People finding me now. For me, yeah, ego boost, of course, the ego boost. And I don't have much of an ego. I need I need a, a boost every, every chance I can get because I'm pretty down on myself. But it's cool to see uh, people following me. Not necessarily uh, songwriters, uh, musicians and stuff. Um, we'll probably end up, you know, anybody who enters my world who has any name recognition, I'm going to reach out to you and try to get you on the show. So if you follow me, know that sooner or later, I'm going to be haunting you to get on the show. Uh, anyway, yesterday, the big football picks. This is why it's rigged, folks. The Eagles versus the Vikings. Eagles are six-point favorites. Eagles won by six, 34-28. I took the Eagles. Willie took uh, the Vikings. Neither one, if you're betting, if you bet either one of those, you lose. Uh, this is where that half a point, and there was no half a point on this. This is where strategically the, the bookies, the bookie services, they got it down. They got it down. They know how to make it work for them. 
because nobody wins when it's exactly when the line is six points and the team wins by the favorite wins by six points. Nobody wins. The bookie wins. It keeps it all. If it had been five point five, the favorite uh, won one, and I people who bet the Eagles would be celebrating with some cash. If it would have been six point five, the Vikings would be celebrating with cash. But as it is. Nobody wins. So, uh, although I picked a winner who did win by the six points they were favored by, if you bet it, you lose. I don't know how we keep track of uh, – that's a push. uh, We're going to have to keep track of the pushes along with the wins and losses. Maybe I should put that on a little thing right now. Push, push. Anyway, um, so – yeah, so if you bet the ranch, which I, I didn't tell you to bet the ranch on that game last night. Uh, if you bet the ranch, you would have lost. And But if you bet on the Vikings, you would have lost too. It's it's a scam, I tell you. A scam. They're really good at picking this right down to the point. 38-24. Um, so we'll see how we do the rest of the weekend. But as of now, so far, I, I guess we have to call that both – Willie and I are 0 for 1 uh, with our picks because it doesn't matter uh, who actually, you know, well, it does for my pick on the Super Bowl. The Eagles are now 2-0 and and on their way to the Super Bowl where they will be facing the New York Jets, according to my pick. Uh, and they will lose by two points to the Jets, according to my pick. But... Um, yeah, it doesn't really matter. We don't really care about the standards. We don't really care about that. We're we're interested in the gambling effect and who, who wins and who loses. And if you bet either team last night, you lose. You're a loser. Loser. And so is Jordan Peterson and uh, the neo-Marxists and uh, the uh, postmodern progressives. All losers. All losers. So that's what happens when you bet football, uh, according to... MyBookie.com. Well, now you have a chance to redeem yourself. If you bet last night and you lost, uh, we have, you know, go, the uh, picks, the pick video, our picks for the week are up. Uh, and you want to go by them and, and you can blame us for your, when you're homeless and you lose, you lose your house, you lose everything. Uh, we don't want, you know what, gamble responsibly or don't gamble at all. Don't, you know, a lot of joking around here, but don't don't bet beyond your means. That's the, the big thing here. Um, anyway, so moving on, we will be talking about um, evolution today and love and how they tie in Rebecca Coffee, Coffee with the dog. Yeah, about that. Uh, Rebecca Coffee it will be with us. Um, she is a science journalist who writes about evolution and writes about romance and love within the animal kingdom and how it affects the 100,000 years of uh, evolution of humans uh, with regard to relationship, monogamy, love, all that kind of stuff. And then in the second hour, we'll be talking to Amari Richards, who is a first-time novelist who's had a lot of success with his first-time novel. And um, at some point, I'm waiting because the uh, critical joke uh, theory is nine minutes long, uh, and it's going to be worth it. 
Don't get me wrong, but I don't need a break yet. I don't need a nine-minute break yet. I'll try to squeeze it in between guests this morning. I am going to take, don't get me wrong, I am going to take a little break for our sponsorship right now to get that out of the way before my guest gets here. So uh, let's go. True Fire is a place to learn guitar online. If you're looking to uh, up your game, if you're already an intermediate player or you're just a beginner or you're an advanced player, you'll find uh, what you're looking for at truefire.com. Truefire is the best place to learn guitar online. And it's also a good commercial if it will... Over 2 million guitar players worldwide learn, practice, and play with TrueFire. Our learning tools and massive library of video lessons will ignite your technical skills, harmonic knowledge, rhythm playing, and soloing chops. TrueFire's educators are the best in the biz, from Grammy Award winners to world-renowned artists. You'll have access to an unparalleled faculty of over 300 top-notch blues, rock, jazz, country, fingerstyle, and acoustic guitar educators. Using our desktop and mobile apps, you'll work with TrueFire's multi-angle video lessons on any device, anytime, anywhere. Integrated learning tools such as video synced tab and notation, slow-mo, looping, practice jam tracks, and many more handy controls accelerate your learning experience. TrueFire's style-specific learning paths guide you every step of the way. Use our assessment tools to find your starting point, then follow our lesson recommendations, and track your progress as you work through your personalized TrueFire study plan. Progress faster with private one-on-one instruction, group lessons, multi-track video jams, live streams, song lessons, student forums, TrueFire's Riff magazine, premium jam tracks, and much, much more. With thousands of five-star ratings and reviews from amateur and pro players alike, you'll find yourself in good company with the world's most comprehensive guitar learning platform. Grab your guitar and ignite your musicality. Sign up free for an all-access trial today. You know, I woke up a little bit chilly this morning, a little frost on the pumpkin here in, in New York where I am. Um, and you know what? It, it's I think it's a little overdue. We're in the middle of September, smack dab in the middle of September. Uh, and usually this would happen like the first week of September. Sometimes it even happens in late August. It's actually welcome, but I'm wearing a little sweatshirt here. I'm a little chilly. Got the windows open at 60 degrees out here, but with a cool breeze. Uh, but there was some, uh, and I know that people, because we, I get hate mail all the time about my uh, position, position, my opinions, my beliefs on climate change. People want to argue that climate change isn't real. I don't think they get it. And I think this is where it's really cloudy. Uh, I don't think there's any denying that there is, climate change is real. And the his, the proof of, of that is in the history lessons of the earth itself, that climate change is real. Because the people will argue, the people who, who don't believe it's something that we should take action on, will say it's cyclical. 
Oh, there goes Jordan Peterson out of my vocal cords again. Um, <laughs> they'll say it's cyclical. They, they believe there was an ice age. If you believe there was an ice age, then you believe in climate change. The climate is changing. There's no denying that. But I get people who want to argue with me. I got uh, one last night who said who wanted to argue that uh, you should look it up. We've had higher temperatures. Well, we just had the second. Uh, we had the highest, warmest August uh, ever on record. And right before that, we had July, the warmest July ever on record. Two months in a row, complete months of warmest months in a row. And, you know, there's, you look that up. Stop telling me to look up dates. Oh, well, yeah, we've had a, war, a warmer day in, you know, one day broke a record 25 years ago or something like that. That doesn't count. Climate is not today's weather report. It's what's going on cyclically, cyclically and, and, uh, pa- and patterns around the world. And it has to do with the water temperatures more than anything. And we have dolphins in Long Island. We never had dolphins on, in, in, the, in the Great South Bay and in uh, the Long Island Sound. They came here because the water was too hot for them. Anyway. Uh, that's in the news today. We are, my first guest is here, Rebecca Coffey, Coffee with the Dog, uh, is a science journalist uh, with a broad national recognition, uh, with broad national recognitions. She contributes uh, five features a month to Forbes.com, where she addresses evolution, science, health, and behavior. We're going to talk about the evolution of love uh, today. Uh, not many animals you see uh except for doves or not uh doves uh swans that i i know about are monogamous monogamous i'm having difficulty this morning man i need more coffee well we got more coffee right now let's just get to it uh rebecca coffee is here let's uh welcome her into coffee with the dog rebecca welcome thank you i'm glad to be here Thanks for coming. Now, uh, uh, the main focus here, what I'd like to focus on, is this idea of uh, evolution of love. And uh, we don't see it in a lot of species uh, where there are uh, species that are dedicated to each other for a lifetime. Uh, And I'm not sure (laughs) we really even see it in humans anymore uh, with the divorce rate so high and people uh, not being quote-unquote faithful uh is it a thing in the animal kingdom at all well let me um smash a myth for you swans not even swans are monogamous animals are not monogamous really yeah swans cheat on each other um black ravens supposedly are monogamous as well but um when the male of the species cheats, his relatives beat him up. Right? Wow. Yeah. So for animals, monogamy would be quite dangerous. And in fact, it is the second leader, leading driver uh, over a 40-year period. It was found that it was the second leading driver in extinctions, localized extinctions, because what happens is that as a population is threatened, animals start mating with whoever they can. 
And often whoever they can is their sister or their cousin. <laughs> and so the population becomes increasingly fragile. That's pretty scary. And then uh, it disappears. So even animals are not by nature monogamous, though like people they may pretend to be. Wow. Uh, well, um, there is a swan. We don't have a lot of swans where I live, but there is a swan couple that's been. <laughs> they've been living right. in the canal, and they go everywhere together. It's it would. I don't know if that's there, but they they put on uh, a show of monogamy. And right. who are they doing that for? They're not doing it for me. No, they're doing it for each other, just like human couples do it for each other. But um, human couples cheat at an astonishing rate. Um, and uh, so there's this charming story, and I wish I could remember who to attribute it to, but he was a social psychologist, and he would talk to people and ask them as couples, how were they doing? How, did, how were they enjoying monogamy? And they would just say the most marvelous things about it. And then when he would get them apart, he would ask the same question, and they would all say, oh, effing miserable. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm probably guilty of that, but, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like an intentional thing. I don't know. Uh, when I was uh, a young teen, just like at the age of puberty, I was hanging out with a friend at his house, and we were in a part of his house, and the the his father and mother were in their living room and the father had just been caught cheating, quote unquote cheating. Yeah. And uh, they were having a heated argument. And then the father walked out of the living room to a place where he could see us. And we were both just standing there dumbfounded. We didn't know what to say. I mean, it felt really weird hearing the argument. Yeah. He looked at us. He looked at his, his son who was a little bit older than me. He was about 14. And he just looked at his son and said, men was not cut out to be monogamous. And I, at the time, it still sticks with me. That's a, um, it's a pretty devastating thing for a father to tell a uh, pubescent uh, teenage boy. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's kind of, but it, it, it turns out that maybe he was right. It sounds like according to. Well, to what... humans are animals. At the same time, monogamy in human populations does serve the, the public good very well. Um, uh, there's some psychologists, Martin Daly and Margot Wilson in the UK. And this data is probably from the 70s, I would say. They found that unmarried men between the ages of 24 and 35 are about three times more likely than married men to murder another man. Wow. Yeah, in general. See, I would have thought the opposite would be true I, because generally we think it's the husband. Whenever a woman gets murdered, we, we automatically right. think it's the husband. Right. But, <laughs> but in general, um, single men are more violent and more asocial than married men. Marriage has a calming effect on humans. This you know, happens to have been done with men, but I think they would find that it benefits females as well. I read something on social media. Of course, you can't trust what you read on social media. But somebody, uh, this account that called itself Fact on Twitter said that women who get married uh, uh, 
increase. Married women uh, will die younger. Uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how, uh, but being married cause takes years off a woman's life, but being single takes even more years. Off <laughs> <laughs> That's actually quite good. <laughs> there, there's also a body of research that shows that women in close friendships with other women live longer and men who are married live longer which suggests that a close relationship with a woman uh, yeah. provides longevity. Men don't count. They don't make you live longer. Right. Now, are we talking, it seems like we're talking about heterosexual. Uh, right. And, I, you know, I don't want to get all political on this, but uh, now we live in a time where um, homosexual marriage is, is a thing. Uh, and for evolutionary purposes, did, did you, is that, was that always a thing? Is that, or that part of our evolution, a path? Well, no, it's, it's, it's unusual. I mean, it has arisen in cultures, certainly, but by and large, um, uh, the human race has operated heterosexually. That is, they have operated heterosexually in front of the veil. It's right. Like, I, yeah, of course. Right. We all pretend to be one thing, and sometimes we are actually something else. Right. Would that does that serve um, any uh, species purpose? The, the same purpose. Uh, a homosexual marriage would it would it be, you know, have some justification in our evolutionary. Uh, like you said, calming effect, because you just say, seem to indicate that a woman, ha the presence of a woman in the relationship would would make it a calming effect. It doesn't seem like if it were two guys, it, it matters much, right? I, I guess not. But, you know, from from an evolutionary point of view, the sex has to be heterosexual in order to send the um, biological material into the next generation. Darwin said that Sex is really all about creating the next generation. Right. So it's got to be heterosexual for that. But let's talk again about the calming effect. Right. Um, for example, I met a woman who, uh, she was a Palestinian immigrant. And as a young woman, even a teenager, she was part of a harem. That, you know, the lucky women lived in harems because at least you were fed, right? And you were tended to. And she said that harem life was actually fairly happy. That you had to go out and have sex and entertain the guy. But behind the veil, the women were all lovers. Huh. So that they were their, their community and they were happy in their community. You, you kind of, uh, I don't know how you knew I was going to want to go there because I'm not necessarily harem because in, in America we have polygamy. Uh, we have polygamous relationships and the women almost always are okay with it, beyond okay with it, sometimes happy with it. Um, and I always suspected that there were probably some lesbian relationships going on within the multiple wives. But and it's almost always one male and several wives. You don't see like a woman. Uh, how do, do is there an evolutionary path to trace for that or, or where that comes from? Well, um, I think 
I think the statistic is that 85% of human societies have allowed polygamy. Polygamy being the, the non-monogamy that allows for one man to have several women or many women. Right. Um, so... Has there ever been any reverse? In, in... Sure, there are societies where women can have more than one husband. Really? It's more common, much, much, much more common for one man to have several women. And the problem with that for society um, is that it leaves a lot of men unmarried and those men become more violent. Right. And the the idea of procreation, too. I mean, a woman can only, one woman can only get pregnant every six months. But if you have uh, 12 wives, they you can keep them pregnant all simultaneously. <laughs> it also creates a group where everybody is a little too related. And you might oh, yeah. end up sleeping with your brother and not know it. Right. Now, what about the attitudes uh, and, and morality and all that kind of stuff? Is that linked to uh, evolution? I mean, because th- th- these things that you're talking about seem to have an evolutionary um, cause or effect, cause and effect on uh, how how people deal with this. What we're talking about, romantic love, really, because I want to get into the other kinds of love that uh, are supposedly this i don't know what i know about love but um this this whole idea of uh, there's a path for that but is morality our attitudes towards the way we look at it as a society is that uh attributed to evolution as well or or is that just well i i don't think that um i think it's a common misunderstanding of the word evolution to think that it would direct anything it doesn't direct a thing There is no intelligence behind evolution. What evolution is, as defined by Charles Darwin, is just that the environment exerts pressures and the animals that can adapt to the pressure evolve, they change. So it's not survival of the fittest, it's survival of the most adaptable. We're always, as humans, concerned with our children's hardiness and our children's ability to make it. So I think that the conscious decisions we make are never about how will the species survive. They're they're always about how will my kids do in this situation? So parents tend to want to raise daughters who will marry wealthy men, for example. Not that there's anything wise or good about that. Just, hey, the rent will get paid. (laughs) Uh, You said something in there that that sparked my interest because you said there's nothing until... I'm paraphrasing because you said it really quickly and my memory is not that... My short-term memory is gone. But you said... uh, It seemed to indicate that there's no intelligence behind evolution, which is an interesting concept because we have people uh who are committed to the idea of religion and intelligent design being part you know an intelligent designer being part of that i have had an evolutionary scientist on the on the program and i said to him 
does our, our evolution, the, the idea of Darwin-like evolution, the, the idea that we have of that, and intelligent design, absolutely mutually exclusive. He said they don't have to be, but he believes they are. I said, doesn't evolution seem to have an intelligence behind it? Because the way it works, it seems that all these, all everything ties together in a way that is real. It, the consequences of evolution, and not just being with, with regard to love, but with, with regard to how we adapt, how all species adapt, and we kind of adapt in synchronous uh, with with each other. He said it does seem to have some intelligence. It does seem to be a very intelligent uh, system that 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 was created from this. Do you, do you think they're mutually exclu exclusive? What I think doesn't really matter, but I will tell you what I think. It does matter for the terms of the, for, for for the terms of this for for the yeah, program. Yeah, yes. So um, I acknowledge that evolution tends to move towards complexity, that evolution is responses to environmental pressures. And so this becomes this, that becomes this, that becomes this, that adapts this way, that adds this feature. And, it all, and we end up with the world around us, whereas before we had a single cell that went organic four and a half billion years ago. Now, Charles Darwin, um, wrote, at a, first of all, he was an aristocrat living in England in the 1800s. And he and his family and all of his friends were good Anglican people. And his wife was especially religious. And so when he came up with the theory of evolution and the fact that it was not directed and it was just chance that made all of this, given everything that had happened along the way for four and a half billion years. Many people think that the reason that he didn't publish for 20 years- <laughs> Afraid of his wife? He was afraid of what would happen to him. <laughs> well, that seems to be another myth that could be smashed because in fact, she was his editor. He was the worst, if he was in, had been in sixth grade, he would have been the worst speller in the grade. He was just awful at it. So she straightened out everything. She respelled everything. She was his editor. And probably what kept him from publishing for 20 years was not fear of the church, but just he was busy and he was sick a lot because when he did his five-year voyage around the world, he got bit by a bug that made him sick for the rest of his life. Right. So um, a lot of people think there's a conflict between the two. I don't think there's a conflict. I think that if there is a God, he designed a world that could take care of itself. Right. Uh, well, the, 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 I go with Carl Sagan. You know, when we talk about God, we can't talk about God without defining it. Nobody can agree on a de definition. So it's kind of, it's, of course, we're going to get into arguments. It's like uh, anything you want to argue about something. First, you have to be able to define it. If we can't define it, then there's no way we can talk about it in real terms and, and really come to a consensus. <laughs> because we're talking about two different things or, or 8 billion different things in this case. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I'm just interested from the perspective of the 
because and a lot of people get uh, and the um creationists get caught up on this like darwin was a human being and he was not infallible obviously he wasn't infallible he got himself sick by getting bit by a bug uh so and so his theories while it seems to uh um shed a lot of light on where we came from and how we got here is not necessarily um the word of God, if you would, uh, you know, right. and so it's just a theory in there, and you know, people who don't understand what, how rigorous the uh, scientific principle is, and how how theories are really, in some cases, more imp- impressive than law. Uh, but uh, so they say, claim it's just a theory, and and Darwin might not have gotten everything right, and but. Which there's no real way to test that, is it? Because evolutionary processes are not thousand-year processes, ten thousand-year processes, million-year processes, That's right? right? That's so it. That- people do do evolution experiments, but they're with things like yeast, not with things like right. Gorilla. So we so we can never know the, the bottom line on this. But there is, it, we still live in a time where we're still, you know, the Scopes mon- monkey trials are still happening daily in, in the world. And it's, it's pretty frustrating because I do think there, it, you know, it's kind of like the climate change uh, argument. We can argue whether he got it all right, but we can also see there are t- telltale signs that a lot of this is, is based in reality if you, if you really just open your eyes. And it's really frustrating. Now, coming back to the love thing, we had been talking about romantic love, but there are other kinds of love, or are there? Is love a real thing? And that's another thing. It's like, God, how do you define love? But a mother's love. Mother's, yes. Motherly love, paternal love. And I think mother, more than paternal love, uh, maternal love, (laughs) uh, is pretty evident in species mothers are really protective they're all that um that is a different a a whole different thing and but we kind of lump love all into one thing one word which is all-encompassing uh what have you learned about the evolution of mothers and their offspring (laughs) well so charles darwin um he made a few mistakes (laughs) one of them was that he just assumed that um, animals were capable of the full range of emotion that um, humans are capable of. He thought crickets could fall in love, right? <laughs> well, the, the animals that we are closest to are, are the, so that's orangutans, gorillas, chimps, uh, bonobos, and us. I think that's the complete list. And, um, and, and monkeys are a little farther away from us on the evolutionary change. Primates, as a, there's primates as a group, and then there's monkeys and uh, great apes within them. Humans are great apes. We're simply the most evolved great apes. Um, so in primates, you can see lots of evidence of mother love. If a, if a, um, a gorilla baby dies, um, that mother is clearly bereft for a long time. A chimp will risk her life for her children. Um, A baby monkey 
the death of a baby monkey will cause the mother to carry it around dead for, day, for days. She might carry it for days, grieving and grieving and grieving. <clears throat> so, yeah, um, uh, while most animals and maybe all animals cannot experience romantic love, which might require imagination and an idea of a future and, a, and hope and, oh, will he do this or will she do this? Mother love is really instinctual. You love the, you love what you get. Right. Um, so, um, <clears throat> interesting observational studies have been done with orphans. Uh, so what happens when a primate does not have a mother? It seems, it, it seems to impact its social skills and its reproductive success. So that, um, for example, um, males in a community of chimps that were uh, orphaned before they were 17 years old, um, or before they were puberty really, they matured into adults who had far fewer babies, who couldn't maintain alpha status in their, in their communities, um, first offspring were generally born later. They fathered about half as many offspring and their offspring died in infancy more often than, um, wow. right. So it, so, you know, what is it about mother love that helps so much? Um, well, partly it could be. And again, these are observations. They're not controlled studies. It could be that being touched by a mother provides the oxytocin that reduces stress. And as you grow up, if you are relatively unstressed, if you're calm and happy, you may have an entirely different nervous system by the time you're grown up. Um, you may get more food and better food you are possibly better socialized. If you've accompanied your mother through her days, you've seen how to interact. You've been, uh, you've, she's made introductions for you. She may someday find you a mate. Um, she models social competence. So having a mother is a pretty cool thing if you're a primate. Yeah, I think uh, Robert Johnson uh, wrote a song about motherless children have <laughs> a harder time. Uh, motherless children have a harder time. I laugh about that. It's not a funny thing. It's but... not a funny thing, and they yeah. but they and they do have a harder time. Now, right. you know, Darwin thought that chimps could fall in love, and um, sorry that crickets could fall in love, and. These days, I think most scientists would disagree. By the way, I need to just remind everybody I'm not a scientist, I'm a journalist. Right. And by the way, I have a book about this. It's called Beyond Primates, Looking at Evolution. Right. Not and you can find out about that at RebeccaCoffee.com, which is scrolling across the uh, screen, and it's in the description, clickable for you, wherever we can Thank make you. it. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, most scientists would probably say that not even primates are capable of romantic love. 
but some, some, even Jane Goodall, she, she's not willing to say that they're not capable of romantic love. And Franz de Waal is not able to say that. It could be, it could be, they're just not capable of vocalizing it, of talking about it. Again, I think sometimes when we try to, uh, the word love is like God, you can't define it. And I think if we try to put uh, romantic love is as the same, use the same word to describe it as we would motherly love. We are uh, bound to get confused by all this yeah. stuff. And what, and how do you really define love? And you know, like eight billion people, you'll get eight billion different answers. So it's it's all this is really a hard thing to kind of uh, get a handle on when we can't even really. We're talking, we're using a word that really has too much meaning. Right. Uh, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Uh, but now there have been many cases and you see it on social media all the time where it's meant to be like a heartwarming story, like from a zoo where a baby lion has lost its mother and a German shepherd mother is raising it. Uh, as, where does that fall? Because that seems to be the same motherly re, re, uh uh, relationship where the German Shepherd definitely has that uh, protective and maternal instinct, yeah. and the baby, of course, needs that. How does that, you know, how does that play into all this that you're you're talking well, about? Look at humanity. We adopt people all the time. Ask a mother who's an adoptive mother whether she loves her child. Yeah. Yeah. So that we're prepared for that and 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 we're prepared to cross we're not prepared to cross species except that we are we love our dogs we love our cats right well and now that's a whole other thing that I, because people will put human emotions on their pets or attribute human emotions on their pets do they is, Again, the word love is a really, uh, the more we talk about it, the more it occurs to me that we, it's, it's an inadequate word. But can pets feel love for their owners? There are whole books written about that. Um, and some of them are written by uh, animal behaviorists. And, and the conclusion is yes, because they're writing about their own dog. Right, yeah. And, and we all think that our dogs love us. Yeah, it depends on how you define love. But I would say the way I define love, my beagle loved me for 14 years. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, again, it's really a muddy uh, topic just to, to start with. If we can, let's, let's kind of... Sex and love are not the same thing, but humans tend to uh, think... They are, especially the more, the more, the further we get down the timeline, the more uh, we kind of think of them as one or the other. There's um, species, and I don't know what, I like the Black Widow, and I don't know if all this is just mythology or something, that the Black Widow would kill her mate after sex. Spider uh, research is fascinating. I love spider science because... For instance, there's a kind of a, it's very, very common for male spiders to die as part of sex. It's the last act in sex. And um, I kind of relate, but go ahead. <laughs> so with spiders, um, if the male allows himself to be eaten, 
some there's one species it is called the brown it's just called the brown spider i think he hurls himself into her jaws he does a flip and ends up butt first in her jaws <laughs> and she's three times larger than he is so what the heck is he doing well, she doesn't have an egg to fertilize. She's got an egg sac to fertilize. Wow. And if his sperm get to it, he's going to be sending hundreds of babies into the next generation. And, and Darwin talks about uh, that as the purpose of mating is to get, you know, that we are instinctually driven to send our biological information, our gametes. Into it doesn't the seem like that would be uh, uh, contribute to the, the feathering of the species, though, because that ends the male's uh, ability right. to have multiple. But, but he is food. He is nutrition for a hundred babies. And oh. that's what he really cares about, according to Darwin. Oh, now, my God. Now, Darwin had... Speaking of spiders um, and the ability or the willingness of the male to die in order to be food for the next generation, there's an aspect of evolution that Darwin never caught on to because he was working too early in science. Um, when he was working, nobody really knew what a, what DNA was or what or what a gene was, what a chromosome was. He identified natural selection as like whatever about you happened to help you survive the environmental pressures, you know, brought you into the next generation. So it's the most adaptable that survived. Then he also identified sexual selection. How is it if your primary instinct is to throw stuff into the next generation, how do you get to mate? Well, if you're a peacock and a male, you have riotously beautiful feathers. If you're a stag, you have big horns. So there are certain physical attributes that will get you um, primacy in the battle for mates. Right. Well, what happens after mating? He didn't think that through because <laughs> yet there were microscopes and sperm had been seen under a microscope by a scientist in the 1600s who was very embarrassed about the fact that he had collected his own sperm and put it on a microscope slide and then published about it. But it, they just saw him as tiny, what he called animalcules. He didn't know what their purpose was. At first, people thought that whole beings were in that and from sperm came the entire human being. Wow, that's great. Right. So what, but what Darwin didn't realize was that in many species, the females have more than one mating partner during a mating season. So you not only, if you're a male, have to mate, but you have to make sure that yours is the sperm that gets to the egg. So right. how do you do that? Well, there's this great spider called the Malabar spider. It's a jungle spider. It has two sex organs. Its sex organs hang from its head. And 
the female has two receptacles. So it inserts its one of its organs into one of her receptacles. Now this is where it gets fun. When it's ejaculating, it bites off, it severs its sex organ and leaves it inside her receptacle where it continues to enjoy the sex. It continues to ejaculate, even Whoa. though he backs up and he's ready to fight off any competing male. And if one approaches, and it's also plugging the receptacle, you would think he would run over and just insert himself into the other receptacle, but no. So I, I, I was going to give you three guesses. You I can't. Uh, well, yeah, I can't imagine being ready to fight after I've had my penis bit off. Uh, he ingests. <laughs> he not only severs it, he ingests it. So the scientists were wondering, the heck? Why did he do that? Yeah. So they conducted. These are scientists in Asia and Europe. They conducted basically boxing matches, and they put some eunuch spiders uh, and they, they match them up against fully able spiders and some partially eunuch spiders against fully able spiders and, um, and some fully able, you know, were both competing spiders were fully able. And the title of the publication says it all. And it wow. is eunuchs are better fighters. Wow. Get rid of your sex organs. You're a better fighter, possibly because it has given you a boost of calories. Wow. And it's then as the last act, the male goes over and offers himself as a meal to the female. Wow. This is all fascinating stuff. Uh, and, you know, it's really hard to wrap your head around uh, the fact that so many different species have different kind of um, takes on what it takes to uh, prolong the species. And because I think about in the uh, feline, uh, the larger felines, the, the big cats, uh, they will murder uh, babies so that the woman will, the, the female will get ready to get pregnant again. Uh, that kind of stuff. We have all kinds of oddities that it, every species has something weird about. I mean, yeah. something to look back and say, why? How did that? Uh, so we tend to think of behave, uh, of evolution as just a physical thing, but it actually does uh, create some behavioral uh, yeah. cha changes in yes. species too. Yes. Is that, is that the biggest takeaway from this stuff is that Evolution is more than just a physical uh, phenomenon. Right. It's a it's a um, a physical a physiological phenomenon, a behavioral one, and a microbiological one. Wow. So that in this area that Darwin didn't realize existed, there are certain um, you know, you, like like. Kids' tennis shoes back in the 60s jump faster and fly harder, or whatever it was. You can, some sperm are healthier 
than others. Some sperm swim faster than others. Okay. Some sperm competition, you know, so there are microbiological adaptations. We're about out of time here, but I wanted to talk about, first of all, I don't read Forbes because I think my, my um, inclination is to think that Forbes is about money, and I don't really care about that money that yeah. much. But it's a bit surprising to me that you are writing, uh, are you writing about evolution in science for Forbes magazine? Yes, I, I was. I've actually recently stopped um, the, the editorial. I had to do five articles a month, and that is way too many. I'm I'm really shocked that they even had, again, you know, I'm pre- prejudiced against a, a, a publication just thinking it's all about money. Obviously, it's not all about money. Yeah, it's not any longer all about money. But now on RebeccaCoffee.com, there are books listed that are not necessarily about this subject, right? You you write uh, humor books? or right, you, I do write humor books. And um, I have been told that I am funny even when I don't know it. <laughs> well, that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I probably, I probably have been told that too, and I, I don't take that as a compliment. <laughs> it's not necessarily a compliment. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you being here. I mean, I think we've learned something. I just want to get your uh, comment on somebody in the, in in one of the chat rooms. So hold on, let me uh, just see what they said here because it, it struck me: evolution means improvement, or else it's de- devolution. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with that? Because uh, as we're, as I don't think necessarily everything that happens through natural selection is always a positive thing. What What's your take on that? The idea of evolution always uh, results in improvement. Uh, I think that that's a linguistic trap. Evolution versus de devolution. Right. Um, it. Evolution means change. It means surviving a threat. That's all. Um, it can be a permanent step in a positive direction. The fact that that it meant survival means that it was improvement, but it, it, it's not necessarily a permanent state, and another pressure will make the evolution happen in another direction. Gotcha. It certainly moves towards complexity. Yeah. Well, I, again, I appreciate you being here. I wish you great success. I hope people will go to RebeccaCoffee.com. That's coffee, not uh, with two E's, but uh, C-O-F-F-E-Y, RebeccaCoffee.com. And you can find out about all the books if you're interested in this stuff. I love the, this discussion because uh, I think we live in a world where still evolution is up for debate in a lot of people's minds. And, uh, you know, just a theory. We hear that all the time. So, But it's, uh, I never really thought about it in terms of, uh, its effect on love, romance, and all these kinds of things we were talking about this morning. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you for being here. I wish you uh, continued success. If there's anything I can do uh, to, to promote your work, I will. So, uh, Thank you. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Bye for now. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Rebecca Coffey, folks. Uh, RebeccaCoffey.com. Let me know what you think about that discussion. Uh, I think it's uh, the spider stuff, and uh, that that's really interesting but it's also scary this is the stuff that horror movies are are made out of uh i'm going to take a not such a short break here uh we have another guest coming up omari richards uh, who is a uh first time novelist who has done really well with his first novel uh and he will be here in just a few moments actually he's already in the green room right now uh we are uh committed to um going to play uh critical 
a joke theory with our friend uh, G.D. Fenderson. I've uh, got to cue that up for you uh, right now. Uh, in the meantime, RebeccaCoffee.com. I'm taking that off the screen. Make sure if you're interested in learning more about what she has to say, that's where you're going to go uh, find out about it. Too, too many things here at once. We are. Without Willie, I'm lost. You see, I'm lost without Willie Boy, who's uh, in South Dakota today. Anyway, um, let's see here. Present... Uh, I'm having to do things a little contrived here, using two different systems uh, to make this happen. Critical Jokes uh, uh, Theory is a uh, contribution piece uh, by G.D. Fenderson, who is a uh, humorist at large, certified humorist at large, foren certified forensic humorist at large, but he's losing weight. Uh, here's his piece for this. Hello, week. welcome to Critical Joke Theory with your host, G.D. Fenderson, certified forensic humorist. Now with new joke technology. Hi, I'm G.D. Fenderson, certified forensic humorist at large, but I'm losing weight. Welcome to Critical Joke Theory, now with new joke technology. Hunter Biden has been indicted on three gun charges, four if you count the dick pic. Picks, dick pics. If he goes to trial, expect a hung jury on the dick pic charge. Escaped convict Daniela Cavalcanti was captured without incident on Wednesday morning at a tractor supply store. During his two weeks on the lam, Cavalcanti had made several attempts to change his appearance. He had previously shaved his mustache and beard and donned a light green hoodie. It is believed that when Cavalcanti was captured at the tractor supply store, he was trying to disguise himself as a landscaper. During his escape, he stole an unsecured rifle from an open garage. The homeowner reportedly fired several shots at Cavalcanti, but missed. Arrest that homeowner. First, for leaving a rifle in an open garage. And two, firing a gun in a residential area at a person who's running away. He's running away. You think you're a cop? One last thought. If Cavalcanti was a U.S. citizen, he could avoid prison by running for president. Kim Jong-un met with Vladimir Putin in Russia. Putin greeted Kim by saying, you are my prisoner. Kim responded by saying, I claim this country in the name of the People's Republic of North Korea. Utah Senator Mitt Romney will not run for re-election in 2024. The Republican Party is too crazy for the man who follows the teachings of Joseph Smith. Thousands are dead in Morocco after being crushed by stones and rocks. Some for adultery and blasphemy, the rest from the earthquake. Coco Golf wins the U.S. Open and her first Grand Slam. Congratulations on the U.S. Open, but as to the Grand Slam, I have eaten at Denny's many times and it's no big deal. Luis Rubiales has resigned as president of the Royal Spanish Football Federation following the kissing scandal of Spain's Jenny Hermoso at the Women's World Cup final. Rubiales made a public apology and maintained that he did not use his hands, although he did try to stick a foot of tongue down her throat. Quentin Tarantino begins work on his final film, The Film Critic. He said that he wanted to do 10 major releases. Tarantino will now only have minor releases. 
consensual minor releases. A federal judge denies Mark Meadows' efforts to move his Georgia case to federal court, stating that Meadows has not met even the quite low threshold for removal and that his efforts fall short. Now Mark Meadows feels like his shorts fall around his ankles. Packy, makers of the hottest snack chip on the planet, pulls their one chip challenge from the stores after Massachusetts teen's death. One kid dies from one chip and the product is pulled from shelves. But guns? Comedy actor R.S. Shivaji dies after sudden cardiac arrest one day after his latest film, Lucky Man, is released. Shivaji appeared in over 100 films and he ironically dies after Lucky Man. I do not know who, what Rotten Tomatoes will say about the film, but he should get 40% for rotten luck. A New York man was killed instantly by a Peloton bike, his family says in their lawsuit. The bike claimed not for nothing, but it was self-defense. GOP presidential candidate Chris Christie has vowed to show up at every Trump appearance if Trump continues to avoid the GOP debates. Look for Chris Christie to show up at a courtroom or food court near you. Trump is involved in so many trials with so many lawyers and so many co-conspirators and so many witnesses that the only people not playing six degrees of Trump have already pled the fifth to some degree. In football, Aaron Rodgers tore his Achilles tendon, taking a 10-yard sack, setting the Jets 10 years back, but they cannot take back that contract. Rodgers should have gotten vaccinated. More than 600 cases of Victor Premium dog food have been recalled due to salmonella contamination. Your dog can recover from salmonella if treated. They may never recover from that Halloween costume that you made them wear. Fat Bear Week catches the image of a lost hiker leading to his rescue from an Alaskan mountain. The hiker was rescued before Fat Bear got fatter on lost hiker. Side note, when I first Googled Fat Bear image for this bit, it came up with 13 Chicago Bears players. Trump ally Peter Navarro was found guilty on both counts of contempt of Congress. Navarro showed his support for Trump but Trump showed his contempt of Navarro. That 70s show star Danny Masterson received 30 years for two counts of rape. This news puts the sigh in Scientology. A federal judge gives 22 years to the ultimate leader of the January 6th riot, uh, my bad, Enrico Tario received 22 years in prison. The ultimate leader, Donald Trump, has yet to be charged with seditious conspiracy. Proud boys, stand back and stand by, and stand still while you get strip searched. The special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election has widened. Uh, to paraphrase Stephen Stucker, the probe is getting larger. Flooding at Burning Man kept thousands stranded at the Nevada site. Due to the abundance of drugs, only dozens were aware that they were stranded. A Russian spacecraft crashed into the moon last month. NASA says that it has discovered where they just followed the trail of empty vodka bottles and war crimes. 
Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson died at age 75. He received recognition for his work in hostage negotiations. Sadly, he passed away before he could negotiate the release of the GOP from the MAGA cult. Singer-songwriter Jimmy Buffett died at age 76. Jimmy Buffett was worth over $1 billion. Not everything was wasting away in Margaritaville. Vocalist for Smash Mouth Steve Harwell died at age 56. It's said that death comes in threes. Those of you who thought that the third person would be Keith Richards, well, you might as well be walking on the sun. A judge denies Kenneth Cheesebro's motion to sever his Georgia election case from Sidney Powell. Cheesebro's attorney cried weaponization. Cheesebro cried because he has to be in the same room as Sidney Powell. Speaker McCarthy orders Biden impeachment inquiry. McCarthy is trying to get the MAGA caucus off his back. There's only so much his back can take without his bind. Trump asked that Judge Chutkin recuse herself from the 2020 election fraud case. This is another attempt by Trump to delay his trial. For a man who was so anxious to clear his name, he's not very anxious to clear his name. I'm G.D. Fenderson, certified forensic humorist, now with New York Technology. Thank you for watching Critical Joke Theory. Be safe out there and don't feed the crazies. Critical Joke Theory with your host, G.D. Fenderson, Certified Forensic Humorist. Now with New Joke Technology. Wow. Uh, thank you, G.D., for that beast. Uh, <laughs> interesting stuff. They, obviously, we, we have talked about <laughs> a lot of those stories with Willie's news reports earlier in the week. Uh, and uh, interesting take on that. Of course, GD gets a little more political than Willie ever will, but I hope you're enjoying those pieces. Uh, we are about to meet a an author. Omari Richards is a debut novelist who specializes in sword and soul-style epic fantasy for teens, young adults, new adults, and fantasy enthusiasts. The Kimoni, I'm ho- I hope I'm... Uh, pronouncing that correctly. Kimoni Legacy Initiation is his first novel and became an Amazon number one bestseller in just two days. Uh, He's here to uh, share a sneak peek into the world of the Kimoni Legacy. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Omari Richards to Coffee with the Dog. Omari, welcome. Good morning. How are you? Hope you can hear me okay. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, Volume's a little low. If, If there's any way you could increase that, that would be good. Uh, so I, that's a tremendous feat. Uh, your first novel reached bestseller in just two days. What's the people want to know? What's the secret? How the heck did that happen? <laughs> I have no idea. A lot of luck, I guess. <laughs> L- luck. So you're a believer in luck. Tell tell people a little bit about uh, your background and, and where you come from, and, and uh, how if writing was all, if authorship was always part of your uh, plan. I guess. Oh, sure. Great. Um, first, is the volume better? Yeah, it's good. All right, awesome. Um, so basically, I grew up in a home where books was were like basically the main source of entertainment. My father and mother were avid readers. They were both politically active in their home country, um, the Commonwealth of Dominica. So they were very avid readers. They were avid debaters. They were avid educators. 
Um, in fact, my dad read so much that a lot of times he would just sit out. Um, he would just sit out of his classes and just read under um, read under a tree. Or and then when he was done reading, he would walk back to the library, return the book, and then um, come and then come out with like twenty other books. Um, so when they came to America, they passed on that love to reading to me and my siblings. And I think I started reading when I was like maybe like four or five. And I just and I just love books so much. I just always wanted to write one. So I guess you can say authorship was just something I just always wanted to do. And uh, so, so you you always wanted to do this. Now you're not. It, uh, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't assume this, but from appearances, you're not a. a uh, a a twenty year old. Uh, so it's taken you a while to actually pursue. This. Uh, how? What, what was? Uh, why the delay? I mean, why? Because I, I would have I would have assumed that being your background that you'd be uh, gung ho right out of school and and get, getting right into it. Why is this well, your first novel at this age? Well, unfortunately, I love reading, but I'm also an avid perfectionist. So everything I put out, I said, basically, it's not ready. It's not perfect. It's not how I want it. Oh, that is uh, important for me because I've been struggling with that for probably about five years now. I've been writing. I have written three drafts of a book that I have yet to publish, and I battle myself with it's not ready. It's not good enough all the time. And this is my reason for not publishing. What advice do you have for, for me for getting over that? Um, what really helped me is just having other voices because writing is a very solitary activity. And then when you work on drafts for so long, the only voice you hear is your own. So this is why beta readers, alpha readers, and writing circles are really helpful because for the longest time, I couldn't get past chapter six in any of my drafts because I kept erasing everything I wrote because I kept thinking, this is not good, this is not good, this is not good. But then when I went to a writing circle and showed it to some readers, they basically said, this is amazing, what comes next? And then I said, um, I don't know. <laughs> so, um, so that really gave me the motivation because it told me that, okay, I have something here. People are interested in, in what I'm writing, what I'm trying to say. So let me keep going this way. Wow. Uh, you know, I I hear what you say, and I have had beta readers. The problem is, I think, and I, I talk to my one of my bandmates about this all the time. There's a danger in listening to one or even several, you know, a small group of uh, influential people who who uh, are commenting on your work. Is that you're trying to write for them now, or trying to please them and entertain them? And they're not necessarily the biggest, the wide, wider audience. And sometimes you can put too much importance on their feedback and start just trying to cater to one or two or three voices, which could be could lead you down. That's my my issue with with beta readers because I have had beta readers, and then I find myself trying to impress that one person rather than trying <laughs> to write a good book. Um, yeah, yeah, that's very true. And it's like like all writing, it's a balancing act because you have to balance your own negative thought and then you have to balance what other people expect. But to really navigate through it, you have to ultimately write the story that you want to read. So right. as long as you keep true of the kind of story you want to read, the kind of story that you've always wanted to see and envision, 
then that kind of helps you navigate through the whole thing because if the beta readers feedback falls into that vision you can you can use that if it doesn't then um you know it's not right so you can disregard it and then if your own voice is compromising the vision that's when you go to beta readers and so on and so forth so as long as you have that true north of the vision and that that way you can basically navigate it as best as you can interesting interesting now uh the book uh in my intro I described it as specu- uh, as fantasy, but yes. I think in one of the letters I got from your publicist, she described it as a speculative fiction. Uh, it, it, and I hate, I, I really hate putting labels on stuff, uh, those kind of labels, because I think that limits us when we, th- with, how would you, dis- I have not, obviously have not read the book yet. I haven't even had, uh, I've only known about it for about a week now. We're trying to cover there. Uh, how would you describe this book and who it, who it appeals to? Well, I'm fine with the epic fantasy label and speculative fiction is just kind of like the larger general label for like sci-fi, fantasy, fantasy romance, so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I would call it epic fantasy, um, sword and soul, which is um, basically fantasy that's more focused on um, African inspired mythology, culture, and so on. And I would say it's for basically the new adult crowd like maybe late young adult, like 16, 17, 18, but it's mostly for um, new adults and basically anyone who enjoys um, a good fancy story with political intrigue, morally great alike characters and a lot of magic. Uh, a lot of magic. That's what I was going to talk about next. With the magic, magical elements of this stuff, are you uh, necessarily a believer in that kind of stuff, in, in magical thinking? Um, magical thinking, I mean, of course, I believe in magical thinking, because if I didn't have magical thinking, I wouldn't have created the book or had it published because <laughs> just because just trying to publish a book and getting it published is a magic in and of itself when you really think about it. Um, but in terms of like magic in and of itself, I did grow up in a home where not so much it was magic, but superstition. And even though my parents didn't really take it seriously, it's still kind of inform the way that they viewed the world like for example my dad was doing dishes and then a blackbird landed on our porch looked at him dead in the eye and then it just like called like three times and flew away and then when he told my mom the first thing she said was you better go check on your mother right now because (laughs) because in their mind that was a bad omen because um, where they grew up, people saw these omens everywhere. They saw these supernatural creatures everywhere, like the strange lady that's sitting on the porch and she talks to herself. She was a witch. So in order to defeat her, every time you pass by her house, you have to step on her shadow. Or, um, or um, <laughs> yes, or um, you can't cross this bridge at a certain point in the day because that's where this monster will show up and take you away and so on and so forth. So my parents didn't necessarily believe in any of this stuff, but it's, but they grew up with it enough that it basically informed the way that they view things sometimes. Right. It's so interesting to see the kind of things that people uh, don't outright dismiss. I, in my younger days, I was a magician (laughs) and I did a card (laughs) trick from a guy who grew up in Haiti and he was uh, really put off by it. And he, he threatened to turn me into a rat. 
<laughs> and he definitely he actually believed that in in the power of voodoo and stuff like that that he could turn me into a rat and i i was fascinated just by the the ability to let your mind go there and believe in those possibilities i i hate to be um sound like i'm putting people down because of belief systems whatever it's just it's it's really surprising to me as a person who is very uh, or tries to be as, as completely grounded as I can be, and not necessarily uh, a believer in magical thinking and those kind of things. But I leave the a door open to it. Now, as I mean, part, of, do you have? Um, is there an important uh, use for that in literary? I mean, in in a way to get out a bigger uh message or what do you, what do you what is your actual uh what are you trying to achieve with these stories of fan of, of fantasy and uh and and that kind of stuff is in the minds of the readers the possibilities that are out there what are you trying what is the uh, you know I'm, I'm really stumbling here with the struggling with the uh no coherent question but the ultimate purpose of what you're writing for is it just to fulfill your own purpose for, for your own creativity or are you trying to kind of open the door to provocative thinking towards, uh, I don't know, where, wherever it might go, but a, a bigger ideas within younger people, because the book is is geared for younger people. What What is your purpose in writing? Um, basically to introduce new adult, young readers to a larger world, because as my parents always said, the world is as big or as small as you allow it to be. So with um, with um, fantasy and um, sci-fi and other genres of that nature, the biggest um, takeaway, the biggest advantage is that it's not um, it's not bound by our contemporary, common, current world. Like anything can happen in fantasy. You can go anywhere in sci-fi. You can go down to the depths of the ocean and find Atlantis. You can fly, you know, you can fly through the sky on a dragon and so on and so forth. And those kinds of stories just really not only captivated my imagination, but expanded my mind to the possibilities of life because the, because in fantasy, the common farm boy who was a nobody can rise to be someone of prominence. So, um, and you know, it's, it's those kinds of archetypes that keep fantasy going, that keep people really invested in fantasy because fantasy tells us anyone can be anything. And so with this book, I kind of wanted to extend that lesson to, you know, um, black, Afri black American kids who usually don't see themselves in fantasy because fantasy is mostly Western European centric, you know, European middle ages. So you don't really see a lot of black focused characters and fancy I'm, I'm trying that's an interesting observation because i wouldn't have made it being a white guy from new york uh it probably wouldn't have occurred to me but as as you say it and i think about it you're mm -hmm. absolutely right that's that's something i hadn't noticed before so you know uh thanks for thanks for making me aware of that uh <laughs> but I, it, it's interesting that you picked atlantis and flying on dragons because <laughs> i have had guests on who that's not a fantasy in their mind. They were portraying that as fact. As, as <laughs> so, you know, you talk about that being fantasy, and for some people, that's a very real, a very well, real thing. Based yeah. off of my research that I've done, Atlantis was just a parable created by Plato to prove a larger point. I really don't. I re, I mean, I'm sure there are sunken cities 
due to, you know, floods and all kinds of stuff. I don't think Atlantis, as we think of it, was one of them, but what do I know? Well, uh, not to sidetrack the conversation, uh, uh, Dr. Anthony Edwards, who was on the program, who had believed that he had solved the, uh, or, or had been on the same as Jimmy Cosetti, who who is an uh, uh, Atlantis uh, scholar, uh, believed they had solved what it what really was and really was about. He was telling me when he was on the program that because he had simplified Atlantis into not this necessarily super advanced uh, technologically, but super advanced for a Stone Age. In other words, they developed a way to have running water, which is <laughs> not exactly having computers and flying spaceships and all that stuff. So it was a very down-to-earth uh talk about what Atlantis really was, but he had also talked about how he had gotten death threats from the, the people who just want to hold on to the lore of Atlantis as <laughs> kind of what you said, and then he went missing. Mm. <laughs> I have no way. <laughs> That's intriguing. He was getting death threats. He's totally... I, I can't find him anywhere. Not to mm. sidetrack the conversation, but... No, yeah, but so, that is a very interesting sidetrack. I've never heard of that before. Yeah. Uh, so now, a creative process in right. First of all, did you have to do a lot of research? Did you have to go to Africa? Do you, or <laughs> have you been to Africa? I have not been to Africa because I started writing this when I was like 15 years old, and at the time, I just never had the money or the time or anything to actually go to Africa. And then my thought was, if I go to Africa, what would I even do? I don't have like scholarly contacts I can talk to or anything like that. So I just did a lot of reading, a lot of watching videos from people who did live in Africa. Um, but yeah, it was a whole, whole, whole lot of reading, um, scholarly articles, history books, um, primary sources, secondary sources, anything I could get my hands on and just trying to see what works, see what doesn't and see what fits into what I was trying to create. And a lot of the times what I was trying to create had to change because the history and the way Af um, West Africans viewed the world and and um, and um, supernatural didn't match up to what I was writing. So I had to change that so I could be more authentic about it. So yeah, about 15, 17 years worth of research to get here. Yeah, very cool stuff. Because, you know, Africa is a huge continent. And people, huge. especially, and I hate to make this a racial thing, but white people in America, white Anglo-Saxons, uh, to think of Africa as one thing. Yes. But I, I kind of try to relate it to the idea, like, the United States is a big place. New York and New Mexico are very different cultures, completely different cultures within the same country. Africa has got is far more different cultures, far more diverse than anybody can imagine. It's so huge, and there is so, uh, you know, Egypt and South Africa are not the same place. Yeah, the I, Congo. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, I like to tell people who seem to have trouble understanding the vast cultural and ethnic differences that exists within Africa, I like to say, if you can tell me the difference between a Briton, an Irishman, a Scotsman, <laughs> a Norman, a Viking, an, um, a Slavic person, a Greek person, and a Turk, you can tell a difference between an Igbo person, a Yoruba person, a Mandinka person, a Stonok person, a Dogon person, because they all, because even though 
um, Scotsmen, Irishmen, Britons, English people, Welsh people, they all are physically white. They are still culturally very different. It's the same thing in Africa. The, the Yoruba and the Hausa people, they are all black, but if you right. but they are all very culturally different. They believe in different religions. They have a different way of viewing each other. It's all it's an it's a, it's they're all entirely their own thing. They just they just live in the same country. Yeah. Now, uh, for for you not having to, now writing about a place that you have not been to, and I understand the value of research and all this stuff. But when it comes to character development, uh, is that a, a challenge for you not having actually you know met somebody from there or you know trying to get yeah it would be very difficult for me to invent a character say of, of the deep south where i have not spent a lot of time in the deep south in the united states i'm just the actual process of character development a challenge or did it come easy to you or or because in uh, I'm going back to what you said about uh, uh, fantasy is you can go anywhere. Maybe you can make these characters really uh, non-realistic or not, not really necessarily faithful to what a person from that area might be. Well, the cool thing about fantasy is that while it is um, made up, it's fictional, um, it's still based off of aspects of humanity that it, that pretty much exists everywhere so when you study folklore mythology and myths which i did in college you see that there are archetypes there are the same archetypes across every culture there's always the hero there's always the princess there's always the queen there's always the strong man there's always the evil sorcerer there's always a dragon there's always you know a mystical item there's always a mystical place so once you understand that it becomes easy to just kind of play around with them, add in your own stuff, add in some of the cultural aspects of it, because even though each culture has the same archetype, they all are executed in a different way. Like a West African hero, like uh, Sunjata Keita, the founder of the Mali Empire, has a different kind of story than another hero, like let's say Hercules or Odysseus. They all, when you, like, when you read the story, it's all about a mythical hero who did this great thing, but the overall themes, the overall lessons from each story are different. So you, so you have to find out where those differences lie in the culture. How did they view the story? What were they trying to accomplish with the story? And then once you understand that, you can actually pull from that understanding to create characters that are true to the place. Wow. Uh, now, the actual writing process, these, uh, the, are you working, are you... Because you said you started this when you were fifteen, I'm I'm yes. assuming it's a you're not a uh, a guy who just starts with blank a piece of paper and just starts writing. You have notes and and kind of outline and and get into yes. the nitty gritty of writing. People have all sorts of different creative processes, and I'm always fascinated about how it gets started. And, and uh, so, tell me a little bit about your creative process, if you can, if you even think about it enough. Um, well, I kind of I kind of honed my creative process because um, writing fan fiction when I was like 13, 14, um, because I just loved the, the movies and shows I watched. I just wrote my own stories. 
Um, but with this book, the creative process started when I was reading Christopher Paolini's Eldest, the second book in his Inheritance Cycle. And then I, and then I realized, like you, um, that, you know, there's not a lot of Black characters in fantasy. And I had read a lot of fantasy growing up. And I was just interposed myself in the characters. But after reading that book, I was like, yeah, there's really no Black characters. Okay, let me just write one about a Black character. Um, so the process just started with like notebook after notebook, just jotting down random ideas in between classes or even in classes. Like you can ask my high school teachers, like my, like I was always jotting down notes, but not necessarily about the lesson. I was just trying to talk to the characters in my head. So it was always like notebooks and notebooks became outlines, outlines became character sketches, character sketches became scenes. Those scenes became chapters. Those chapters became deleted chapters, and then and then undeleted chapters, and so on and so forth. So it was kind of like a snowball effect, but it was a lot of starts and stops because, like I said, I could only get to chapter six, and then I would delete it, and then I would get to chapter seven, and then I would delete it. So it was like almost a never-ending cycle until I was like, okay, that's. I think I think that's enough. Yeah. Uh, are you a disciplined person in terms of I get up every day at 5 a.m. and, and right now I'm not saying it has to be early morning, but stick to a, a writing schedule and, and give yourself that kind of, those kind of parameters of every day between five and six. I'm Again, I'm just picking times out of a hat, but <laughs> that kind of discipline. Um, in terms of big picture, I would say I, I was disciplined because if I was, I would have kept going for like 15, 17 years to get this thing done. Um, I always had that goal in mind and like everything I did, like I always was working towards this goal. But on like a more micro level, I would say I'm kind of 50-50 because there were some days I would get up and, and say, okay, I'm going to get up at 10 o'clock. I'm going to write for an hour and I'm and I'm going to write 2000 words and then 12 o'clock comes and I wrote 300 words or I haven't written anything. So it's so and then after that, I'm like, I don't really feel like writing today. I got nothing. And then that would go on for like a week and then and then another week would pass. And then I was like, OK, I'm going to try to write something. I'll write like maybe 100 words and then. That, that'd be enough. Other times I would break away and come back and then, then I'll write an entire chapter in an afternoon. So it kind of it kind of varied. And you just have to, for me, I just will really work with just going with whatever energy I could get out of myself. Like if every time I tried to force it, the writing suffered. And if I waited too long, sometimes I would come back fresh and other times I would just completely forget where I was. So I'd have to go back and read what I wrote but some people say not to do that. But for me, it really helped because it helped reignite the spark of the story. And because um, because I was reading it as like a reader, when I got to the end, I was like, oh, crap, what happens next? I was like, oh, right. yeah, I know what happens next. So I would, so I would, you know, get to writing. So it was, it was very, um, it's, it, it's a very ebb and flow kind of thing, but um, That's from, so interesting that that you yeah. say that people. Some people say go, don't go back and and read reread what you just wrote. Uh, I have uh, done done that and gone back and rewrote what I just wrote and found that it kept me from writing the same thing over again because I had forgotten I had already written that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. I think it's important. Yeah, uh, for me, it's absolutely necessary to remind yourself of where you are in the story and how you got there. Because oh, if not, you will definitely. Uh, 
you know, write some things that don't connect somehow or all that kind of stuff. Because when you're in the creative, at least for me, and I don't know if this is for you, but in the creative zone, when you're writing, you're just free writing stuff and you, oh, this is all great. It all feels good when, it, when, when you hit that peak of creativity. But then sometimes you go back and say, "Why well, I created a situation here that I can't get, I can't, uh, you know, rectify uh, all, all the justify all these kind of things and, and tie them all together because I just allow myself to go unhinged into this yeah. world of enjoying yeah. the process. And that's kind of dangerous in fantasy because even though fantasy has a reputation of being a place, a genre where anything can happen. And even in the same regard, I said anything can happen. But at the same time, there needs to be an internal logic. There needs to be an internal consistency with everything presented. So if you read a fantasy book and, chapter, and, and throughout chapters one through nine, it's in like high medieval society. And then in chapter 10, you forget where you were. And then suddenly this guy has like a rifle or a pistol because you forgot what you were writing. And that, and that goes into the book. Suddenly that throws off the entire book because it just brings up questions. Okay, if this guy has a pistol, why doesn't this society or this plane over here have guns? And if they don't have guns, how did he get a gun? Who has gunpowder? Who created it? And so on and so forth. So from that one thing you made because of free writing, all of a sudden, unless you get rid of it, you have to go back in the story and either justify it or, or yeah, you have to justify it. Otherwise, that's going to throw off readers because you can't just introduce an idea and not do anything with it in fantasy. Right. Uh, now, Kimoni Legacy, what is Kimoni? What, uh, is that a character in the book? Is that the protagonist? Yes, the Kimoni are a influential clan of the Kitwana Savannah. They basically run the Kitwana Savannah at the behest of the king. They basically rule the Savannah on the king's behalf, but the relationship is kind of strained due to um, wars, betrayals, intrigue, and so on. Very cool stuff. Now, uh, I think I read somewhere, I, somewhere on, maybe it was on the website, I don't know, in my research, where this book, I think it was called The Initiation. Is that? Yes. Yeah. So that leads me to think that this is a series. They're like, this is book one, of, and there's going to be a book two, possibly a book yes. three. That yes. is... Um, that is trending. I mean, that is in authorship these days. Uh, generally, I would have a tough time knowing to, finding an end point, a satisfactory end. Uh, we're always, where do you end the story? You just want to keep going. If it's something you love and you put your life energy into it, you never want mm -hmm. it to end. Oh, how do you, do you have you pre-thought book two? And will there be a book? Have you gone, that, done that in much advanced thinking? Like how many in this series? Where How far is it going to go? All that kind of stuff. Or... Do you leave that up to in the moment where it feels right? Well, since I love the great fancy trilogies like Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time, um, A Song of Ice and Fire, um, all those series are more or less planned out. I basically did the same thing. I've planned out for at least three books. And depending on how book three ends, there's probably possibilities of standalone stories, a you know another cycle of three books, and um, maybe some prequels because with fantasy, 
part of the reason why there's always so much content is because as you're creating, you're basically creating an entire world, an entire universe that has histories and interesting people you don't get to meet in the main story. You have interesting settings you don't get to, but you know you put them there for the sake of world building and you kind of want to explore them. So there's just always more to discover. There's always another rock to uncover when you're writing really good, engaging fantasy. So hopefully, the readers feel the same way about this book. And as I explore more and more and more about this world, they'll be along for the ride with it. All right. Let, let's get a little uncomfortable here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because this book is, is uh, mostly geared for younger people. It could be for anybody who loves fantasy, but it's mostly geared for young people. Uh, I think young people today are probably... I'm I'm talking about the racial element here. Well, young white kids are probably more open to to read this book than their, let's say their parents would be. I think we do still have a lot of racism, and when we see black people on the cover of the book, well, a lot of white people, even if they won't admit it, uh, are going to say that book's not for me. It's just for black people, right? And, but yeah. I think younger people. Are, are the hope and 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 they're probably more open uh to that kind of stuff in your uh reviews and the feedback you've gotten from the book have you seen that what young white people are more open to the to this book because i i would be i would be a little bit surprised um actually i've ha i've had a pretty wide array of review review with all singing praises i've had um, a middle-aged white person gave me my latest review and he loved it. He said, um, see, um, the director of Ten Commandments would have a field day adapting it if uh, he were still around. I've had Indian um, um, reviewers in um, India absolutely love it. I've had suburban white women say that they love it. Of course, I've had African-Americans say that they loved it. And, and, um, and for the most part, I think it has enough that everyone can enjoy it because like I said, um, fantasy, mythology, it all hinges on archetypes that are familiar across, across, you know, every human civilization on earth. And most importantly, the whole purpose of art is empathy. So, you know, when you, so the whole point about reading about different characters is that you can put yourself within their mind space, understand how they think, and therefore you can understand how presumably people who are who um um who are similar in real life you can understand how they think somewhat so yeah. i think so i think people are able to connect with my characters even though they're not of the same ethnicity because the characters speak to something that is within all of us the need to please your family the need to find peace the need to find your own way in the world the need to live within the environment harmoniously those are all things that whether you're from europe eastern europe india um, you know, East Asia, Southeast Asia, they're all things we can all understand. So I think that's why I, I believe the book can appeal to everybody. I, I hope you're right. And I well, to, just to speak to what you're talking about, I think that's the only way humanity can move forward. And I know because, listen, racial divides and racism and that kind of stuff are uh, probably an incurable disease. But I think we can do a lot towards it more towards uh healing those those wounds this way 
than rather getting into arguments over politics and all that stuff. The idea that uh, uh, connecting with a character or, or archetypes, as, as you, you mentioned, are, are, is the best way to, for people to realize we're all just people. And and that it's happened, you know, in my world through music, understanding, uh, you know, connecting with 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 black music. It definitely opened me up to African American culture and all that kind of stuff, in a way that all the political arguments and all the you know all the you know cognitive reasons and and arguments for for understanding that would not do. It's on an emotional level. Like this guy's me. It's the yeah, same as like- me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would be surprised the unifying power a good story can have on people. Like I've been in various fandoms throughout the years, um, Star Wars, various animes like Dragon Ball Z, um, Inuyasha, Roni Kenshin, Sailor Moon. Like if you go into a room of 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 nerds at Comic Con or Otakon and say or and, and say, hey, I like Sailor Moon then a whole swath of people of various races, ethnicities, and nationalities are going to raise their hands and say, yeah, I like Sailor Moon too. Or, or, you know, I love Dragon Ball Z. Goku is my spirit animal when I work out and so on and so forth. So those kinds of stories really have a way of just connecting with people because if you say you like the same story than I do, that's an automatic connection and we have right. something to build off of and create a kind of rapport. Nowadays, there is... there's the the culture wars have infiltrated these fandoms in in a significant way but i hope we can get back to that whole unifying idea that we all we're all here for the same reason we all like this show we all like this intellectual property i agree the problem is caucasians are the only ones who have not had to experience what you just talked about uh you know being able to relate to characters that aren't representative don't necessarily look like them because when i grew up that everybody every hero was white every hero every, you know so we never had to look at, at uh, a story or listen to a story or read a story where the hero wasn't like me in, in right. a lot of ways and i think you know being able to step it into somebody else's uh, experience of the world and realize that every race except the Caucasians in America have had to deal with that forever. So they, they have a, a complete understanding of how to take yourself out and just look for the commonality and all that kind of stuff where, uh, you know, some ways we're handicapped because we haven't had that, that experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. My uh, writing professor in college, uh, like one of the best piece of advice he gave me was when, when we were all trying to write stories, he basically said, what you did to get on the bus this morning is a memoir. It could be interesting, but it's not really a story. What the lady sitting next to you did to get to the bus stop this morning, that is a story because you are taking the time to try to understand this other person. You're trying to, you are taking the time to understand her circumstances, her struggles, and what just getting to the bus this morning would mean to her. If you're just writing about yourself, you're not like, Unless you have a very interesting life story, if you just write about yourself, you're not really achieving much to that end. The whole point of art and yeah, the whole point of art and writing is to try to understand the person next to you, try to understand the person across from you, try to understand the person 500 miles away from you as best as you can. Great stuff. Uh, Now, uh, you mentioned earlier uh, some of the uh, more successful books that, uh, that have had 
series and they were all in the in this genre sort of um made into movies uh, obviously mm-hmm. and i talk it's, uh, after 1500 authors of uh, uh, a lot of them you know oh they oh you know, that's just a pipe dream yeah sure of course i'd love to be made in a movie <laughs> but you know fantasy fiction uh type of things are you know the the, the stuff that movies are made of and <laughs> there is it's not like that it's not like hollywood doesn't have an interest in the dollar in, in the the dollars that these kind of uh, movies would present now obviously i'm not even going to ask you if you would like to see this in a, in, made into a movie but because <laughs> obviously i think you would um and you uh but the idea of are you proactive because we live in a world where the industries want everybody to do the work for them so uh, even though your book might lend itself well to a movie oh can we see a screenplay is there a draft have you done any kind of investigating on uh, how to uh, turn your book into a screenplay or taking any proactive steps in order to say this would make a great movie here's the draft of a a first draft of a screenplay that you might want to look at well yes i'm i i have taken screenwriting classes in college in preparation for this day actually um so i have a fundamental understanding of screenwriting I haven't really tried to turn this into a screenplay just yet, um, but I am working on that now. But the main thing, if I want to turn this into a movie and get studio attention, the main thing is to build up the demand, build up the market for it, because nowadays studios want something that has a built-in audience. If you don't have a built-in audience and come in like completely blank, nine times out of 10, they're not going to invest in you. But if you say, hey, this book sold how many copies i have this many followers on social media it trended this this many days then then that's when they have that interest so right now my main focus is trying to build up that interest build up that audience so that when i say hey i have a screenplay ready for you they're gonna they're gonna they're going to ideally jump on it it hurts me to hear you say social media because they it's true and it's absolutely undeniably true that they're going to look at your social media numbers uh, to to see, you know, that doesn't necessarily portray or or uh, parlay itself into good art. I mean, you can have a million social media followers and not necessarily have a great work of art. And I think that if we get caught up in that trap and we do more and more, I think the decision makers and the people who or putting money or, or whose job it is to say, yes, green light this, publish it, make it a movie, whatever. Uh, those people, it's very shallow and unimaginative and just look at, bo- at bottom line numbers like that without really yeah. looking at the quality of the work itself. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's been like a problem for arts in general, even before yeah. social media, like Absolutely. the most the most popular records, the most popular movies, the most popular books are necessarily the best, but they're the ones that get the most eyes. And from a business perspective, that's what you want to invest in. So it's so... Um, Especially have- in the stand-up comedy world, which is my uh, basically uh, the most uh, common type of guest we have on here, is comedy clubs uh, not really vetting people on the... 
on the quality of their work, but on their social media following. And then you get somebody who never really had the stage presence. They're good on the internet and short clips and all right. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah you're right. It's it, across all art. All yeah, art. it's this it's this very weird catch twenty two in that you want you want good quality art, you want good quality material, but you need an audience. But the only way you get that audience that people consume your good quality material. And the only way to do that is to put yourself out there. But to put yourself out there, people need to find you. And to do that, you need resources. And it's 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 like this endless loop where even at that, even when you do get it, all of a sudden people just want that one piece of content. And you're like, well, I want to do something else. It's like, no, just do this one thing you did really well. It's like, that's right. not all I can do. But it's like, well, that's well, that's the thing that's making us the most money. So you're going to keep doing that. So it's this very like, even when you get somewhere, you still have to keep you still you're still on the wheel, basically. Right. Uh, speaking of comedy, I have to say goodbye right now to Gov's Comedy Club. Yesterday, I overran the light, and I don't want to do that again. Uh, <laughs> stay tuned on on the Gov's Network for Knock 'Em Dead comedy coming up uh, in just a few minutes. We have to say goodbye to Gov. Bye, Gov's. We'll see the we'll see you Monday. Uh, now, um, and we are getting near where we're going to have to wrap this up. This has been a really uh, insightful co uh, conversation now. Uh, the world of AI um, is a really interesting thing. Last night, I got um, a solicitation of to help me write my book. And I thought, I'd just check it out to see what this is all about. And it's a, you know basically took me through a couple of questions, write this uh, like one line descriptions of this and that, and, that. and within three or five minutes of that, I uh, said your outline for your book is ready. Down, it was, well, I haven't checked it out yet, but it was going to write me uh, fifty thousand words uh, of a book. Now, I'm not for using that as the final product, but. And I know we, we've demonized this whole idea of AI being, an, an, uh, you know, the end all. But it, I think it can have a really useful thing for authors as they get started or to be able to give you an outline you might not have considered before. All those kinds of things. What is your take on AI and its dangers? And do you feel like, oh, do you, are you in agreement with me? agreement with me that it has it, it can have some potential upside to it and a positive use for it and and to boost creativity or improve our work well ultimately ai is a tool which can be useful but the way the companies are using it is hurtful to people um because you know there are claims of plagiarism that they really don't do anything about because um, AI is just basically learning from other artists, which is what human artists do. But the biggest difference is human artists say who they learn from. They, through homages or references, there is a clear line between this piece of art and the piece of art that it came from. With AI, they don't do that. It just acts like it just came up with it all on its own without any credit or any line of references that people can turn to and say, okay, it got this idea from this artist. Let me contact this artist. It got this idea from this book. Let me go check out this book. So I feel like if AI just, for example, just generated a report of artists and works it referenced, 
and that that went into the creation and i feel like that's a good way to make everybody happy because the artists have their work in writing that it was referenced the, the the person who generated the art knows who to reach out to and who to give credit for and the companies can avoid all this plagiarism stuff because they can say hey we gave you credit we'll we gave you compensation so you know you know, they can say this, the matter is solved. And I'm sure that's not the perfect solution, but I feel like that's a good path forward because, you know, I'm sure there were plenty of artists who would have given up their art for AI learning for free if they were just credited for it. But because right. companies are, gave them credit, then that just that just created a bad energy, a bad vibe, a bad establishment. Interesting. Now, that's the first uh, that I've heard that part of the uh, the situation articulated. But as you were talking about, it, I'm thinking that I'm thinking back to last night, filling out those little things. There's obviously uh, influence. They want to know what kind of influence you, what who who I liked as you know, what kind of stylistic stuff. And the obvious intent on that is to try to mimic somebody else's style and all that kind of stuff. I hadn't even thought about that implication of it. It just feels like a lot of people are just down on it because they don't like the fact that a computer wrote it, and then uh, you know, or but computer isn't writing it. As you're saying, it's kind of lifting ideas and just kind of rewording it or shuffling the deck on on influences that you tell it that you want it to mimic. Wow. I mean, That's- I do understand coming down on it hard now when it's in the relative early phases because if we put in hard guardrails in now with legislation and ethical code and everything like that, as it moves forward, it can become more ethical and more useful to people but if we, because if we don't put up the fight now, then the companies will feel like they can do whatever they want. And by the time we get it, we, we get everything together, it might be too late. So we need to put up the guardrails now while still somewhat in its infancy. It's probably in its toddler phase now, though. Right. Uh, now, your website is going across the bottom, amari-richards.com. And the link yes. is in the description for people who want to get the book uh, and, and uh, follow you and, and uh, hopefully become loyal readers and, and read the whole series and all that kind of stuff. Uh, coming back full circle now, when we first started, I asked you, how, was, how did you uh, get to a number one on Amazon? in just a couple of days for your first book. And you said, uh, luck, you had no idea. Wouldn't it be uh, good to ha- have an idea so that you could reproduce that effect <laughs> rather than, I mean, I know luck does, play, I, I don't uh, diminish the um, influence of luck on, on success and all that stuff. I think, I think it, it, if you do, if you just negate it completely like comedian Tom Segura does, doesn't believe in luck at all. It's all him. It's all uh, hard work and all that stuff. If you if you believe in that, you can let your ego run away, and then that's a dangerous thing. I do mm-hmm. believe in luck to a certain extent, but I also do believe that success leaves clues. Uh, for your next book, wouldn't it be great to know <laughs> how the hell you did it? <laughs> um, I guess I, I guess basically just comes down to I had a good product. Um, I put in the work, I put in the time, I put in the effort, I put in my passion in the book and that passion came off the page and that passion resonated with people, which, you know, prompted them to go buy it. So I guess moving forward, I basically just need to constantly put my heart, my passion and my soul in whatever it is I'm writing. And then when I do that, the audience, the, the audience will find my book. 
Excellent. Excellent. Well, it's been a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I wish you great success with the book. Anything I can do to help uh, keep promoting it other than just like I will put links to it on in my newsletter and, and on the websites and all that stuff. But uh, to keep it fresh in people's minds, uh, I will send you the links to this. If you have any use for this in, in promoting the book, uh, please do. Uh, and uh, when the next book comes out, feel free to come back. It's been it's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I'm I sure there's a I lot more. Will. All right. Thanks so for being here. Have a great day. Bye for now. Thanks, you too. Bye. Amari Richards, folks. Again, it's amari-richards.com. You want to follow up on that. Um, you know, I guess that's that's the program for today. Uh, Willie, as I mentioned, is in South Dakota. Uh, he's got a competition tonight, a uh, comedy competition. Carl is in Bisbee, Arizona, where he will be at the show tonight at the Shady Dell. Oh, the voice is going. Maybe it's just in time for for us to wrap up the program. Uh, at the Shady Dell for a show, which is uh, Billy Wayne Davis' show featuring Christine Levine and Andy Andrus. Uh, Doug Stanhope is hosting that. And uh, I believe, uh, and I've been hinting at this all along, I believe Carl will be uh, getting some opening minutes on that show. I hope he does, and I hope he report back on Monday and we can talk more well, Monday. He'll probably still be traveling or be really jet lagged. Maybe Tuesday he'll be with us. But it should be, uh, it's an exciting thing for me to have members of this program all over, you know, all over uh, getting some exposure with some really cool uh, opportunities. Uh, we're, we're spreading our tentacles across the United, United, these United States, as they say. Anyway, uh, good program today. Uh, two good guests. Uh, a lot of insights, a lot of interesting talk. I hope you enjoyed it. Love to know what you think about it. Write to me at info at minddogtv.com, info at minddogtv.com. Uh, if you're looking for me and my performances this weekend, just got one public performance this weekend at uh, Tanner Park in Copeg, Long Island, New York. We'll be playing at the Fall Family Festival. We'll be closing it out now. There is a hurricane in the Atlantic coming towards New England. Uh, it's going to miss Long Island, but we will get some residue, uh, residue of that, probably, or residual effect of that, whatever you want to call it, uh, tomorrow. But Sunday is looking like a beautiful weather day. Come out and party with us. It will be a great family uh, type of thing. It will be four, four to eight, I believe we are performing. Uh, Tanner Park, I think says three o'clock, but I believe the poster says three o'clock, but I believe we're at four. Anyway, that's the show for you today. Thanks for coming. Have a great weekend. Uh, and uh, don't forget to turn on your radio. Have a great day. Bye for now.
me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to